the Clear on Life podcast. Clear on Life. Clear on Life. Clear on Life. The Clear on Life podcast. A journey into finding purpose, meaning, and clarity in life. Welcome to the Clear on Life podcast. Hey friends, in this episode, I talk with Michael Charles Owens. He's a Buddhist teacher, translator, and author. We explore what Buddhism has to say about purpose and meaning in life. But not the Buddhism you might be thinking of. You see, in American Buddhist communities, there's a heavy emphasis on sitting meditation practice, and not so much on Dharma teachings, and even less on the Buddhist sutra texts. Michael is an expert and a big proponent of Buddhist sutras. And so, we explore the often overlooked magical world of these sutras and talk about how it can be applied in our modern daily lives. You can find out more about him and his work at www.lotusunderground.com. Also, a big shout-out to SF Dharma Collective from San Francisco for facilitating this interview late last year. SF Dharma Collective is a community-run collective that hosts live online meditation classes, talks, and events. Check them out at sfdharmacollective.org. I've decided to split this interview into two episodes to keep each under 45 minutes. I would call this interview a journey. Enjoy. Hi, Michael. How are you? Hi, Jasper. I'm good. Thanks for having me. You seem to be very qualified, and <laughs> especially for the topic that that I'm interested in, which is finding purpose, clarity, and meaning in life. That word dharma, mm. what does that mean? Would it relate to the concept of having a purpose in life? One of the original meanings of that word is life's purpose. What one's dharma is, is sort of the idea of what they're here to do, what their karma or what their conditioning has prepared them for or is leading them towards. It's definitely a deep sense of purpose in this life. And I think that's true in the general Indian tradition, and then certainly within the Buddhist dharma. It's a particular dharma. It's a particular idea of what it means to to be here. For me, dharma is about a certain purpose, although that gets tricky too, because mm-hmm. even the idea of uh, purpose is very future-oriented. Right. And not necessarily now oriented. So, so this idea of purpose in life, I've done Silicon Valley, I've done art, I've done tech, and I've done a lot of that. But sometimes it feels like something is missing. I've chatted with friends and, and it seems like it's a common thing. Maybe it's like a quarter life, midlife crisis scenario too. Given your knowledge in all the different sutras and your background, I'm curious what's there in the text that might apply to modern day and age as far as purpose in life goes? Uh, It's tricky. I think studying or practicing Buddhism is a very dynamic process. These texts are ancient. They're dealing with a culture that is not our own, from a language that is not my own, not most people I know's own. And so there's a way in which the, the actual information in them is a little not for us. And I mean that because we're not, uh, at least I am not a renunciant, I'm not an ascetic, I haven't renounced this world yet. So there's a certain way in which these, these ancient texts, I mean, I would say this even of the, the, the Bible and the Quran, there's a way in which these ancient texts are not for us moderns, but they are though, and that's, that's my 
deep-seated belief that they are there they are but when i say it's a dynamic process i think it's very much about the individual interacting with them and so not just receiving like a one-way street of I'll read the text and get out of it what it's telling me, but an actual back and forth with one's own situation. I really think that that Buddhism is unique too for encouraging this, which is for the reader to really take out of the text what they need and to leave behind what they don't. And not every tradition actually says that. Some oh. traditions are, you know, you need the whole whole kit and caboodle, or, you know. Right. Buddhism is a very special tradition for that. Really processing the text for oneself, seeing what rings true, and then going there. And if nothing rings true, then it might not be for you. I mean, that's also part of the part of the tradition. Yeah. It seems like uh, it's not imposing anything. You get what you want from it. Yeah, and of course, that's the way I teach it, and it's not the way everybody teaches it. Some people will very much teach it in a very dogmatic way. Mm. Happens all the time. Dogmatic Buddhism, that mm -hmm. just sounds... <laughs> is that a rare phenomenon? Not in the world, yeah. Um, in the United States, it is because I feel like Buddhism, as it's practiced in the United States, is kind of reactionary to the more theistic traditions and not even actually about their theism, but more church-based traditions. And so the kind of rugged individualism that Buddhism offers is people like that. It's like, Oh, I can do it on my own. There's no authority figure. Even like I was just saying, you get to take from it what you like, but that's not really actually the way Buddhism is practiced in the world. The, the Buddhist world is pretty diverse country to country, culture to culture. But what a lot of people or Americans are surprised about is that when they go abroad, they're surprised to see Buddhism looking a lot like a theistic church religion where there's pews mm. and people kind of repenting for sins and, and doing all this kind of thing. Oh, wow. Yeah. That really people would be like, wow, I don't, I don't remember that sutra. So it's, it's a trick. It's a real trick to teach Buddhist ideas and Buddhist concepts and Buddhist history and Buddhist current affairs. I don't know what you would call it, the current state of Buddhism. Those are like three very different things. The current state of Buddhism, the history of Buddhism, and then the texts of Buddhism. Those are three very different things. And so once again, it becomes uh, tricky to see in these ancient texts from these other cultures that may be practicing a very specific kind of Buddhism that doesn't resonate with us, it becomes tricky to find what's in this for me or to bring it back to your question. What, what, what for the modern person, what can we get out of this? Right. You know, right. So right. I, I do feel like I'm here to help. <laughs> like that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. But do you think that having a practice of any sort in one, in the Buddhist tradition, is i'm guessing the answer is yes but i just want to hear from you a little more elaboration on the practices perhaps a meditation oh, practice well let me just uh, i'll just say that at its at its very core buddhism all forms of buddhism are about a very simple twofold practice what could be summed up as stopping and seeing mm -hmm. or calming and contemplation Uh, or to use the Sanskrit terms, shamatha and vipassana. 
So you have the practice of calming down. <laughs> and it's hard sometimes. It's, it's hard. Just that part's very hard. But that is where the meditation, where the mindfulness, where that comes in is the calming down. And that's a practice that even within terms of Buddhism, they say is applicable to all sentient beings <laughs> that we're all kind of agitated by this life or aspects of this life. And so we're worked up. And so we have an innate ability to calm down if we so choose. So that's great. So there's that practice, which again, that's the whole mindfulness tradition. That's the whole world of Buddhism in America is focused on that one aspect, which is just calm down. And I think that's, that's, that's gold (laughs) to just calm down. But the other side of Buddhism is what is called the Vipassana or the insight or the seeing, which is this kind of objective or an attempt at an objective seeing that once we've calmed down, then maybe we can take a look at this world or take a look at ourselves or take a look at the situation, whatever it is, but we can see it more clearly because of that calming that we wouldn't be able to do before. That's the practice. It's simple. It's pretty simple. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, It makes a lot of sense. You know, if you're calm, obviously your quality of life has improved right there and then. Bingo. Yeah. And then you can probably with, from a calm state of being make better decisions even. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's really the Buddhist view of karma is more of this kind of uh, process Meaning that when we are in a either agitated or confused state of mind, we might make confused decisions that then put us in a worse, more confusing situation that make it harder to make a clearer decision that that makes it. And it kind of snowballs in a bad direction. But the exact opposite of that can be true, too, which is with a clear mind, you make a clearer decision or choice. And that actually puts you in a set of conditions that are clearer, that are, quote unquote, better. It makes it easier to make a clearer choice the next time so that kind of movement can go either way Uh, that's the importance of calming to begin with yeah and is this something that's common in all buddhist traditions again i would say at the core and the heart of it that really once you either peel back the cultural layers or you literally dispense with the bells and whistles or whatever paraphernalia they're using At the end, even if it's a Buddhist tantric fire ritual, kind of a puja type thing that they do. But when you strip that down, you'll find the calming and the contemplation at the heart of it. And even if it's a chanting, a mantra, a prayer type of a a meditation, you'll still find at the end of it, it's about calming down and seeing. So seeing is the second piece you mentioned, Vipassana. Mm -hmm. I've heard of these... uh, 10-day Vipassana retreats that are pretty common in the U.S., free of charge, and you go there and you're there quiet for 10 days? Yeah. Okay. And that's and these practices that I've separated of calming and contemplation or stopping and seeing, however you wanted to uh, translate those words, there's a way in which they're just one thing, though, too. Mm. (laughs) And that's where like a 10-day Vipassana retreat is 10 days of silent sitting mostly, And that is the calming, but there is also going to be the encouragement of whether it's a Goenka tape or whether it's someone actually there, someone actually guiding you to an insight or guiding you to a way of seeing. And so they're going to be coupled very closely, those practices.
And what I mean to say is, is that in some traditions, they're so coupled, they are just one thing. Uh, I see. Yeah. Got it. Got it. So you, you teach sutra studies Sunday nights here yep. in San Francisco. And what's the purpose of that as far as versus like having a traditional sit? Mm. Uh, a few things. I, I found that because I was this freelance Dharma teacher, I found that in most American Buddhist sanghas, groups or communities, there's a heavy emphasis on the sitting, on the mindfulness. And not always a lot of emphasis on the Dharma, uh, on the teachings, and certainly very little emphasis on the texts, the historical documents. Mm. And so to create a kind of balance, I kind of like to go into organizations or communities that don't offer any kind of rigorous study on the Dharma side and offer that because I feel like that's what I have to offer. But at the same time, I am trying to promote or push a, a not a type of Buddhism. I'm, uh, I'm trying to push people to find their own Dharma, find their own Buddhism, or maybe it's not even Buddhism, but to find their own way. And so I like to be a guide, but not to, to like that I have the, the way and I can direct you to the way, but just that there's all these texts out there. There's all this information that is sort of either buried under more information or buried under commentaries or just buried in a library. Right. I want to be there to bring a lot of this stuff to the surface, break down. It's what it means to folks. And in a way when people are, Oh, that's interesting to me. That thing right there that you said, that's interesting. Then I like to be somebody that can say, oh, you like that? Well, here, go further. Here, read this guy, read this guy, go here, go there. Just so that people know what's out there. And then right. and then choose. Because the real, I don't want to say problem, but it's it's a tricky part about Buddhism in America is that if you go to a certain type of Tibetan Buddhist center, not even, you know, it's not even Tibetan Buddhism. It's not even that broad. It's going to be a particular sect particular type of Tibetan Buddhism, you will most likely only find out about their type of Buddhism. Mm. You will most likely find out only their history. Right. And in a way, you'll probably be told that their their way is the way, the real way, the best right. way, the only way. Right. And if everybody's doing that and, <laughs> and you're shopping around for a kind of Buddhism that fits you, you're going to wonder, wait, yeah. which is it? And I like to be that person that sort of at least claims to have no allegiance to any type of Buddhism. I'm just really excited about the Dharma, really excited about Buddhism and want to share that with everybody. So it seems to me that sitting practice is great, but having a contextual knowledge around that, that we have for hundreds or thousand plus years, it's good to have a balance. So yes, you could be Buddhist in practice, but maybe you have no clue about Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And there's a chance that you might not intellectually be able to guide yourself at a deeper level, but it helps to have that understanding so we can go about in our lives. Mm -hmm. So along those lines, I'm curious as far as all these sutras, how many sutras are there? 84,000. 84,000. Oh, that's oh what my they God. say. Okay. Well, that's the legend, but I'll tell you from somebody that spent a lot of time in the library, <laughs> There's thousands and thousands and that. There may very well be 84,000. Have you read a good chunk? Like, have you read thousands? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And 
That's crazy. So <laughs> <laughs> some are real short. They're only a page. So. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh my God. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> okay. I see. So there's no shortage of sutras out there. No. I'm sure that there's some amazing discoveries to be had for whoever goes on that journey. But we have you. And I'm curious, what are some of the sutras that... And, and tell me if this question needs to be reframed. Uh, might be applicable. Mm-hmm more in our current day and age versus things that are just way too out there, maybe just doesn't apply anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, I've always, my approach to teaching Buddhism has been what would be called knowledge yoga. It's basically yoga, but with your mind, not Mm. your body. Mm. And what the philosophy of that is, or what the idea of that is, is that in the same way that it is very good and healthy to stretch the limbs and to stretch the body and to not allow it to get stagnant and still, in the same way, it's very good to stretch the mind, to think broadly, to think widely, to think in ways you've never thought before. And so... For me, especially with my Sunday classes, when I really try to introduce profound ideas and really try to get those profound ideas across, for me, that is an exercise unto itself, the attempt to understand this stuff. It's not even actually the coming to an understanding of it, but just that thinking about these things, because it's been my experience, especially in the 21st century, with the way media functions in the 21st century, Hmm. it is remarkable the way that you'll hear the same conversations or the content of the same conversations being had everywhere. Everybody is certainly on the same page regarding what is to be discussed. Everybody might have an opinion about that topic, but what people are talking about can be very common. And so that can be a form of stagnation of the mind. And so just thinking about a lotus world, you know, this imaginary world filled with lotus flowers falling from the sky, just that process of imagination or stretching the mind is an end in itself. That's it. That's the meditation. You know, that sounds really cool. Yes. And so that's where I come in. That's what I really like about Buddhism. There's, I think not a lot in terms of the content of these sutras that can be applicable to the modern world. I think it's not really going to be applicable to your, your job or this and that. You mean literally speaking? Literally. But in terms of our life in this modern world, Mm -hmm. I think they're really, really beneficial in that way. They have a lot of ideas to offer. That is so cool. And I wanted to add too about that is that. I mentioned that I came to Buddhism through philosophy. And so I I started by asking the serious first philosophy questions about what is existence, what is matter, what is being, not being, all of these really fundamental questions of reality that I was very interested in. And as time went on, I realized that, especially once I really started studying Buddhist Dharma and these sutras, I realized that the questions and even some of the answers that Western philosophers are just coming to, the Buddhists came to 2,000 years ago. And they've Mm. already been involved in a discourse about these things that the Western philosophers are just figuring out. 
huh? Why, why is that? Is, is, is that just because there's not enough? Uh... It's just our, the, I mean, if you really study the long history of ideas, it's just the genealogy or just the, the transition from Plato to Aristotle and Aristotle to our kind of modern world based on our language that we use that is ultimately, or at least the romance languages that are ultimately going to be rooted in Greek and Latin. And so that just goes back to that tradition. And there's a lot of other reasons why right. the Buddhists were a little ahead of the game. But the reason why we don't know about this stuff is because we've been kind of fixated on Plato the last 2,000 years rather than Dharma. Oh, so earlier you were talking about lotus flowers. Was that raining from the sky? or yeah. What is that? I'm so curious. Is that a sutra? I mean, it happens in a lot of sutras where something will happen and mandarava flowers or lotus flowers or other kinds of flowers will fall from the sky. There's also a visualization, if you will, of rather than chairs, we're sitting on chairs now, but rather than chairs sitting on lotus flowers on the calyx on the middle of a lotus flower. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting about about that that a lot of people don't know is that this word uh, bud buddha uh, the root of it bud is where we get the english word bud and it like a flower bud mm -hmm. and it means the bud means to awaken mm -hmm. and of course a buddha is an awakened one the whole practice of buddhism is about awakening or enlightenment and the metaphor in buddhism is a kind of a flower child metaphor that we are capable of a further awakening of a you know in a way what a christian would call it being born again a kind of a rebirth midlife but the buddhists think of it more as this uh, transformation like a butterfly where we have the ability or the potential for this awakening and what the, the metaphor that the buddhists are going with for that awakening is the flower in particular they mm. like the lotus flower because of this metaphor that it starts in the mud of a pond but then it eventually grows out of that mud uh, okay. and they use that as a metaphor for us in this kind of muddy world and kind of transcending it so that's why they like the lotus flower but also just flowers in general because they're into this idea of this budding if you will got it so rewinding back to yep. sutra could you just Tell us more about, for people who are listening who have no idea what a sutra is. Oh, yeah, yeah. When I was teaching academically as a professor, and I would teach these general freshman-level courses in religion or, or Eastern religion, I would often ask everyone, or just ex, you know, explain that most people know that the foundation of Christianity is the Bible, mm -hmm. <laughs> that there's a text. Right. Many people, most people know that the foundation of Islam is the Quran, right. a text. And Judaism, you have the Torah, a text or body of texts. But then when I would ask my students, what, what's the Bible of Buddhism? Most people had no idea. And it's tricky with Buddhism because there's actually not one Bible per se. There's not one sutra that mm -hmm. all Buddhists use. What there is actually this... 84,000, 84, but oh they don't God. use all 84,000. What, what will make one Buddhist group unique is that they've chosen one sutra as their truth, their dharma, and not at the expense or dispensing of other sutras, 
Not at all. Right. It's not a sectarian war or anything or battle going on. It's just that certain groups have said, you know, this sutra is really special. It really re- resonates with us. Mm. And so you get the growing of these Buddhist communities based on different sutras. And what these sutras are, of course, are the historical recorded teachings of the Buddha. Mm. The, the man, the myth, the legend from, right. from 500 BC. Right. So is there such a thing as prescribing sutras to people? I do. You do? (laughs) (laughs) I do. Yeah, I have a a private practice where I I tutor Dharma or teach Dharma. And I basically, it's a kind of what I call a sutra-based curriculum, where I believe that it's all in the sutras. And and I think we're all capable of understanding them. I'm kind of shy away from commentaries. I shy away from gurus. I shy away from, I just want to go right to the source. Uh And so that's... uh, what I do. And so I'll, I'll sit with somebody for a while and, and if they have interests or inclinations, it will lead me to a sutra that I think that they would really get something out of. So just so that we have like maybe a concrete example of a sutra, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm curious. So someone capable and able to do things, but you know, nothing just fits, nothing feels like, ah, this is it. And they're searching, you know, whether it's in work or whether it's in activities of any sort or relating with other people or what kind of people or what groups of people feeling stuck in some place where don't know what's next, don't care, but really wish I wasn't here Mm. kind of deal. Mm -hmm. And so let's say that was like, one of the uh, symptoms. Mm-hmm. What would be a sutra that would help with that? Hmm. Well, I would think. Well, I mean, it's tricky because mm-hmm. hypothetical person in that way. But right. in, in that kind of situation, I, there's this kind of nice body of sutras that are. I wouldn't call them the psychedelic sutras. Those are mm. even a little further. <laughs> but there's a body of these ones that are qu- quite otherworldly. Let's put it that way. Uh-huh. Quite otherworldly. And there's, for me, I have also been working on a protocol, if you want to call it that, for trying to use the Dharma for depression. Mm. And that kind of relationship with this world and sort of maybe a not too thrilled about this world mm-hmm. <laughs> type of uh, mentality. Or like even nihilism. Also. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, those two things for me are quite coupled. Uh, depression and nihilism and the giving up on this world. And, mm-hmm. and not even necessarily giving up on it, but just being <laughs> kind of over it or right. however. And so I think there are this nice body of sutras that in they are otherworldly. But the whole idea is to come back to this world with Mm -hmm. fresh eyes, with new eyes. Mm. And so the sutra sort of takes you to this other world and then brings you back. And the idea is is that through that process, you sort of have a new way of seeing this world. Uh, I see. Do you, do you have an example? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Or is it, are these like really heavy duty text? They can be a little heavy duty, but. Not because they are the ones that I'm ta- think, talking about right now are rather story like. Mm. I mean, they're not real heavy on the philosophy. Got it. They're they kind of take you by the hand and through a story 
take you to this other other world in a way. And so they're quite, they're visualizations in a way where they're giving you a lot more. Uh, this is actually why I'm working on this protocol of dealing with depression because a lot of these visualizations deal a lot with color mm. and they deal a lot with trying to get the mind to br bring about or visualize these different colors in different relationships. And I think there's a certain graying of the world that can mm -hmm. happen with depression, a kind of blandness. Mm -hmm. And so these kind of sutras that really are very rich. Wow. I think they huh. can spark something. And they're also great for artists too, in that way, really. So, so these are literally like exercises. It's what a lot of uh, people can miss with these sutras is because uh. they're either looking for the meditation manual, which uh. is like, how do I fold my legs? And these are not about the body right and then if you miss that it's a visualization you just think you're it's like a bedtime story and so you you don't play along uh, and then okay. you, you kind of miss it and okay. so if you actually take the time and read these and actually visualize what they're suggesting you visualize mm -hmm. it's a technology wow it's a psychological technology for kind of reprogramming the mind in that way so there are exercises And, and let's say someone was experiencing this world as a very bland, pointless thing. There are sutras out there that will exercise your mind to bring about richness and color. Among other things. Among other things. Yeah, emotions as well. Wow. Yeah, run, wow. so running you through a variety of emotions while running you through colors, while running you through even not just colors, but textures and visualizations. And that's where you get into these sutras that... They will encourage you to be thinking about maybe like a, a bejeweled tree, ah. <laughs> jeweled with, and then emerald and sapphire. And, and so, wow. so, and I've had many, a student come to me who, and they have not read these sutras as visualizations or guides. They've just read them as stories and then asked, why are the Buddhists so obsessed with jewels and all of these precious items when they're supposed to be uh, detached and, you know, and so the, the relationship of Buddhism with jewels, for example, becomes contradictory for some people because they miss that they're talking very, very figuratively mm. and trying to create this jeweled tree in your mind. Wow. They're not extolling the virtues of a jeweled tree in nature or, right. or jewels in themselves. They're actually trying to get you to bejewel your mind. That's amazing. <laughs> that, that just sounds like future tech, very hi-fi. Yes. Here's an exercise. You just do this and you have this, I'm guessing you have an experience and then you get something out of it. And is, is that, you see that transformation in people if they really do the exercise? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, this is true of so many things in religion that I think it requires a certain, like, giving yourself over to it. Mm. And that there's, you know, within the the theory of, of religion, there is something cathartic to that process. Of, of giving in. No matter what it is. Right. And right. so... I think there's a way in which, for me, what I love about these sutras is that it's sort of a almost what, what the Buddhists would call an upaya, uh, a skillful means or a skillful technique in gently bringing you to that place. Amazing. <laughs> 
boy, I kind of missed out on this <laughs> all my life. <laughs> I, I guess there's not that much of awareness here ab about this. This is like pretty rare kind of, it's fairly rare. Yeah, and this approach to Buddhism and the sutras is, you know, it may not have been around for a little while, meaning that there's historical precedent for the way I teach Buddhism, mm -hmm. but I don't think there's a lot of modern examples of it. I see. Okay. It, it almost sounds like a, you know, you do a substance and you go on some kind of a journey and then you come back a more transformed, evolved person. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I, 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 it's not a matter of belief. It's just a matter of having seen it, but that these sutras and these visualizations, if you give yourself over to them, they can have the same effect as a powerful drug surprisingly with the same transformative experience is there neuroscience behind this is i don't think so only because the all of the neuroscience now is focused very much on determining the efficacy or validity of meditation mm. they're kind of really bent on proving that sitting quietly for a half hour does something that mm. seems to me where a lot of the science is focused on, for some reason, needing to prove that that actually does something, mm -hmm. you know, and I understand also in terms of Upaya, that it would be very skillful and very helpful to have that type of quote, concrete evidence because it would bring more people to the practice. Right. So I'm very aware of the value of that, but because the emphasis is there, I have not really heard or seen anybody exploring what I'm talking about. Are you aware of any efforts that might happen in the future around this? Uh, no, just, I mean, I feel pretty alone in the world of suture promotion. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of why I'm out there doing it, because I feel like it's just this vast, you know, resource of all kind, I mean, information and technologies and all of that. Well, I'm kind of blown away that we have all this technology and it's like in the form of these sutras. And there's so many that it, it becomes like a prescription thing almost, yep. which, which you were doing, which is amazing. But the reason why they say there are 84,000 different sutras is because there's, within the Buddhist kind of view of these, of these things, there's 84,000 different types of people. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Then there's an idea in Buddhism of this, of idea of a type and so if you've ever met someone that they kind of really remind you of somebody else, you know, and it's not that they look like them or right. talk like them, but they just kind of like them. Right. Buddhism says, yeah, that's a type. And there's uh, 84,000 types of people. Some are really intellectually inquisitive. Some are more emotional. Some are this, some are that. And so there's 84,000 teachings oh my God. for each person, which lends itself to this prescription idea that, that we've been talking about when you prescribe do you prescribe like one sutra to a person is there like a match made in heaven i personally have a curriculum that moves through eight sutras there it's kind of progressive mm -hmm. and my goal is to get each of my students to progress through that if if they're interested in in a, a real kind of complete understanding of buddhism because i divide it into these kind of eight main styles of practice and Got it. and then if you can understand how all eight of those styles of practice fit together and are just variations on the same theme then i feel like you've really got a hold of 
Buddhism in that way. Mm. And so what I do is, is I start by finding a sutra that fits them uniquely to, mm. to get them into mm-hmm. sutras to begin with, mm. and then eventually try to bring them back through my curriculum. But uh, that's only if they're interested in this broader. Some, I, some folks I, I meet with know exactly what they're interested in, and then we just go, we just go there. <laughs> Now, is it s- sort of selfish of me to not care, maybe speaking for some of the people who might be listening yep. to this, not care about Buddhism per se? but still be interested in these sutras. Absolutely. Yeah. I would say, again, you know, I brought, I've brought it up a few times now that, you know, I started by being interested in just philosophy, just ideas and, and being just curious about this world and about my experience in it, my existence in it. And so I would say if you're, even you know it's that's just one type too <laughs> that's just one right. of the eighty four thousand types is to be interested about this world that we live in and all of that there's so you know there's so much and i think that buddhism is unique because it, it doesn't require that level of uh, commitment or that level of i don't know what even you know belief certainly not but not even like loyalty <laughs> whatever mm. you know you don't even you know yeah you don't have to be a buddhist or whatever i think it's in fact one of the things that i would like to do with these sutras is promote them more widely as just philosophical literature mm. you know and it's because right now for a multitude of reasons sutras have a degree of sacrality around them Right. There's even, you know, many Buddhist communities where they they don't read sutras, they worship them. They mm. literally have them even sometimes under glass. Wow. But often just on an altar and they're worshiped for their existence. But wow. they don't actually read them anymore. <laughs> that's interesting. It's very interesting yeah. and and I, for me that's a testament to their their importance in this world that there are people who have even just stopped reading them. They're just elevating to them to this exalted place. And I think that I'm of the opinion though, that they're exalted or or elevated for a reason Mm. that actually what's in that sutra is really important. Right. Wouldn't it be more effective rather than promote the sutras as literature in this day and age, create an app that has, you know, the sutra doctor app that just, gives you the technology and just guides you through a practice or through a, a contemplation mm-hmm, practice mm-hmm. more yep. than meditation. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Sounds great. You got a developer you want to, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about no, it. Yeah. Cause I know yeah. those, I have a lot of uh, plans for next year for Lotus underground mm-hmm. of doing exactly that type of stuff. Basically the idea is to create not just translations of these sutras or newer editions actually is what often is needed is just newer editions with more modern language. So that's the, one of the main things I do is translate sutras into English, ones that have never been translated before or ones that have been translated. I don't want to say poorly, but that have been translated using a certain vocabulary, maybe a too Christian a vocabulary. Mm. And so I'm either retranslating those or translating sutras that have never been translated before. And, and those, the vocabulary that's a little bit too Christian, why is that? Is that because of the people translating? Yeah. Yeah. So in the late 1800s, early 1900s, when most of the sutras first got translated into English, they were translated by theologians, reverends, ministers, 
Mm. Interestingly enough. Wow. Yeah. But theological seminaries were some of the only places you could get trained in other languages to do this. And so what would happen was, is that you would have a reverend or, or a minister or someone translating this into English, but then they're going to go heavy with the sin and all uh, of that kind of language, which is just mm-hmm. totally absent from Buddhism or mm. it, well, that's tricky because again, it's there if you look for it, but right. in terms of what those sutras were talking about, they're not really talking about those ideas. So there's a heavy, thick glass or like a lens when, when the translation's happening and what you're doing is more of a, well, here it is translating it with not as thick of a lens or maybe no lens at all. Uh, there's always going to be a lens. That's for sure. But I trying to be a little more aware of my lens in that way Mm -hmm. and then be a little more transparent to the reader so that they can make up their mind about what these things mean. And so what that means is that the translations I'm working on have good glossaries in the back, for example. And so you can really look up the certain word. Whereas in these earlier translations I was talking about, they would use the word God (laughs) just, Mm. and it's like, are they talking about the Buddha? Are they talking about devas? They talking about Brahma? Cause there's a lot of gods, you know, but they would just refer to God as sometimes Buddha. And that's a little not, not right. Fascinating. Yeah. You said some sutras are like thick books yeah. with lots of pages. And, and then, then there are some really short ones yep. too. Yep. Do you have one top of your mind? I'm just curious just to get a sense of what a sutra sounds like or tastes like. Hmm. Ah, it's tricky. Mm. It's tricky because there is, of course, the go-to sutra, which is called the Heart Sutra. It's the, oh, yeah. the shortest sutra. It's uh-huh. less than a page. It's mm-hmm. really only basically a paragraph long. Right. It's tricky, though, because to just say it without any guidance, mm. without anything, it's it's uh, pretty ob- obscure. Oh, in, in terms of like it's just a bunch of words that yeah. maybe don't make sense. Yeah. Uh, the Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara, while practicing the profound Pranyaparamita, clearly saw that the five skandhas are all empty and thus overcame all suffering. Uh, yeah. Okay, yeah. And it's like, you need to know quite a few things to even tra- like make sense of what, I, that, what just was said. And so again, like part of my job is to walk people through the vocabulary and the words and the ideas so that they can actually understand what's being said. Mm. And then mm. determine whether that's important to them or not. Right. The Heart Sutra, typically, you would correct me if I don't use this word the right way, but prescribe mm-hmm. the Heart Sutra to someone. Is that what you would say? Like yeah. Prescribe and that's it to my someone? number one. That's my, you know, whatever you, you would call it, you know. It's the, the most popular drug. It, yeah. Okay. It's, it's the go-to one. That's okay. for sure. Yeah. Okay. And I'm guessing there's some esoteric ones that are like way back out there that's 84,000 so that's that's yeah. quite a lot okay yeah okay but there's there's probably i would say a group of about 20 to 30 sutras that i work with mm. that okay. i'm like deeply involved in have either translated or worked on the translations of and so i really know the language and i've also sort of pulled it out of the pile and said ah this is a good one for the 21st century for example mm. there's Buddhism has its problem with patriarchy, like all religions have. Mm-hmm. And so the emphasis on the male practitioner, the glorification of the male leader, all of that is present in Buddhism. Mm-hmm. 
And what happens is, is that that also can trickle into the sutras where the emphasis is on the male practitioner. The standard example is the male practitioner, right? Mm. Even though there's historically been a large female monastic population and of course a huge lay female practitioner, Mm. they're underrepresented in the sutras. Mm. But there are a number of wonderful sutras where the star of the show, the hero of the text, is not the Buddha, but a female. Mm. Uh, And even sometimes a young girl in some instances. And I'm trying to bring those sutras to the foreground because they've actually been considerably buried. Most of them have not been translated into English. The few that have are in some academic uh, texts. They're not promoted within the Buddhist practicing world. They're just kind of for scholars as almost like, isn't this wild that they used to, you know, uh, (laughs) but the reason why I'm bringing them to the foreground is because the actual message of these sutras is a message of what I guess you could quickly call Mm non-duality and actually trying to overcome such binary thinking. And so to have a female protagonist or, and to have a female spokesperson who is the wisest, most enlightened person in the sutra Mm -hmm. is to emphasize this balance or this equality that even Buddhism recognizes that it has fallen into the problem of yeah, non-duality, but male non-duality is better. (laughs) That's like a classic one. You know, where it's like, wait, what are we talking about? Aren't we talking about non-duality? I mean, that speaks to the fact that I'm guessing human beings wrote this and they were all prone to yeah. the whatever cultural thinking was going on at that time, yes. right? I mean, these sutras were written by the teachings of the Buddha, but, but they were written by just average people, right? A good way to think of it is probably not... Yeah, there are words and teachings of the Buddha, but they are eventually written down by human beings and that those people can make the Buddha say whatever they want him to say at that point. Right. You know what I mean? Right. How do you tease out the good ones from the ones where someone just went and did a bad job on a bad day, woke up and just, Mm -hmm. you know, was in a bad mood. It's tricky. It's why it takes a lot of education and a lot of language work to be able to do that. The reason why I say that is because I've translated and run into a lot of sutras and that very quickly you can tell that, that this is being written, you know, way, way later, way, you know, by a totally different culture. This happens a lot when, when texts start getting translated from Sanskrit into Chinese, because there are a bunch of sutras that we know about in Chinese that get trans or in Sanskrit that get translated and their translations are, are right on. They, they did it well, but then there's some other ones where they changed it around to fit the Chinese culture. Mm. For example, to be a renunciant, to be a Buddhist monk or nun is to renounce your family. You do that both symbolically in terms of giving up your family name, but you also do it for real in terms of you, you leave your family behind that was a big problem for Chinese culture. And so they basically rewrote most of the sutras when they were translating them into Chinese and anywhere the Buddha encouraged the people to leave home, they just scratched that out. No, no, no. (laughs) We're not going to be having any of that here. You kind of have to be pretty critical and know a lot to be able to point it in a sutra and be like, I don't think that is coming from the Indian culture. I think that's coming from them. 
you know, the culture it's being translated into. Mm. What I like is that you're looking at it with a critical eye. You're not just taking it and just treating it as word of God. And that's what I encourage everybody that my students and everybody that sits with me, mm-hmm. that that's, that's the takeaway for me. And the big takeaway of Buddhism is that even though, you know, this is a famous saying of the Buddha on his deathbed, that you're, you shouldn't believe anything is true because you've read it, because an authority said it, or even if I, the Buddha, have said it. Mm. You should only believe something is true if you yourself have had an experience of its truthfulness.